in three, two, one. I'm Wendy Caldwell. I'm the executive director of the Monarch Joint Venture, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. Our vision is thriving monarch population that sustains the monarch migration into perpetuity and serve as a flagship for the conservation of other plants and animals. This is the vision statement of Monarch Joint Venture. I was just looking on the website a little while ago, and I was so impressed. It was a partnership banded in 2008. And in our fight at the Prairie Farm Podcast for conservation and the education required for change for conservation, We've interviewed a lot of people. We've interviewed grouse specialists, pheasant representatives, bee representatives, public land uh, endorsers, prairie landscape representatives, prairie enthusiasts. And even though our logo is an eastern tiger swallowtail, we have never had a representative for butterflies on this podcast. And and we're, we're less than 40 episodes, but I, I feel like it should have been in the first 10. I won't lie. Uh, but that all changes today. We have with us someone really exciting, someone we met at Pheasant Fest. Well, actually, we met the organization at Pheasant Fest, Wendy Caldwell, who's the executive director of Monarch Joint Venture. Wendy, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. Good to have you, Wendy. So if you guys have never joined us before, I'm Nicholas, and I've got my co-host with me, Kent Boucher. And uh, this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. Our whole goal is education for conservation. Um, and today, like we said, we have Wendy with us. And we wanted to dive into the, well, it is an issue, the issue and the topic of uh, butterflies as a whole, but particularly monarchs. Um, and, and so let's start with the monarch joint venture, or we might refer to it as MJV from now on. Uh, what is it? MJV is a, we're a national organization, um, a, a collaborative conservation network. So we work with over 120 now organizations across the country that range from local nature centers and volunteer-led groups to state and federal natural resource agencies, businesses, academic institutions, um, really pulling all of these people together to move monarch conservation forward in the most effective way possible. Yeah, that's cool. So you basically are taking 120 small twigs, bundling them together, and they become a very formidable stick. Uh, it, that is really cool. So I, when I was reading online, uh, our mission is to protect monarchs and their migration by collaborating with partners to, to deliver habitat conservation, education, and science across the United States. Uh, why? Why in the world does MJV have to exist why are, why are you fighting for the migration of monarch butterflies? What, what's going on there? Yeah, we talk a lot about, about pollinators and the importance of pollinators and pollination. Um, and monarchs, too, are, are pollinators. And so, admittedly, not, not as effective as, as some of the other insect pollinators out there. Um, but nonetheless, they are pollinators. And we know how critical pollinators are to keeping healthy foods on our tables and keeping our, our food systems secure. 
And so like other pollinators, monarchs have experienced dramatic declines. And, and people are noticing that, um, not just from a research perspective, but in their backyards, people just see fewer monarchs today than, than they have historically and and care enough about this charismatic species that it gives us an opportunity to to increase the scale of conservation to protect not just monarchs but the other pollinators that they stand for and mm -hmm. and truly a, a much wider array of conservation challenges that that we're facing today it's kind of interesting because uh so my dad is the boss he started the farm and uh we've grown dozens of species uh, in terms of wildflowers and prairie grass. And one species that I keep telling them, Hey, you should quit growing this because other people are doing it better and can grow it cheaper is butterfly weed or butterfly milkweed. Um, that beautiful orange uh, milkweed that has the really cool pods. And one of the, one of the only orange, flowers in the prairie yeah what's up with that man when i get to heaven i'm gonna have a conversation about that because i love the orange but uh <laughs> the so the reason he gives for having for just refusing to uh get rid of the field is he likes the monarchs that it attracts he likes hanging out there he likes it's not a very big field but he likes driving by it and looking at the field and, and saying man those things they're, they're there and they're cool and we have fields filled with bees you know during uh seasons of bloom so but he loves that monarch butterfly and, and so many people do they're bright they're orange they're they're like graceful throughout the year so and then by protecting a lot of these species or the monarch butterfly i feel like we are also as you said providing habitat and um uh very needed resources for these other pollinators and we need the pollinators as like a human species um so so mjv they're there to fight for the monarchs and all the species that get behind the monarchs what about you what what brought you to mjv oh that's a good question i um i grew up as a farm kid in west central minnesota um and so growing up in the 4-h circuit one of the things that i did was um, i had an insect collection i tried it out one year and um you know brought it to the county fair brought it to the state fair and added every year um but essentially that inspired my intrigue with insects and insect conservation um so it wasn't necessarily monarchs that pulled me in but just insects and insect conservation in general so when i had the opportunity in my studies to work for for a group called the monarch lab um doing research I learned what an incredible opportunity the monarch butterfly is to inspire conservation in a big way. Um, mm. And so, so I landed there and it stuck. I, I really, um, you know, learned the complexity of this really phenomenal species, but also its ability to engage people in, in conservation in ways that, that I think is incredibly needed. And then that took shape into this national partnership that focuses on monarchs and insect conservation, really, but it's about the people, the people behind the conservation yeah. work. That's really cool. Our motto for a long time has been conservation happens one yard at a time. But recently we've been liking the phrase 
conservation happens one mind at a time. And it's cool that even back then you were studying the insects, you realized, oh, if we're going to be changing minds, if, if people are going to actually start to care about this, the monarch butterfly is a great uh, uh, gateway conservationist bug. Uh, <laughs> Way to turn the monarch butterflies into a drug reference, Nick. No. <laughs> he said bug. He said bug. I said bug. Yeah. We, we love the bug. Bugs, not yeah. drugs. You know, yeah. you could you could make a really good like uh, dare monarch. Yeah, you know, remember? Yeah, t-shirt. Yeah, remember dare That's back at. Back in the day when we all got dare t-shirts uh, uh, yeah. and swore never yeah. do drugs and you could make a sweet uh you could make a sweet uh monarch dare themed shirt that you know is like the monarch uh insect to saving prairie or the gateway yeah. the gateway insect to saving prairie. Yeah, it sounds uh, like a new partner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hey, uh my wife originally shout out to her for designing our logo. She originally made our logo, and uh, I'm sure she would be she would be down to draw something for a uh, like a bug, not drug. Guys, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm having a hard time imagining how that T-shirt goes together and how we're going to be able to put it onto 16 year old kids. I think we might have to stick to growing prairie. Hey, you just I'm make sorry, that you make that you make that thing neon colored, and people will wear it. That's fair. That's fair. What what oh, man. what what do you think, Wendy? So Nick was basically alluding to this when he was talking about how you know monarchs are so well known. What makes them so charismatic, in your opinion? Like what what is it that makes them so easily recognizable? And why does every grade school kid in America learn about you know the life cycle of the monarch? In your opinion, like what makes them so special? Yeah, well, well, for for fear of um, calling out a bunch of monarch enthusiasts, we get so many questions. Sometimes I think that people think every orange butterfly out there is a monarch. You know, there are basically <laughs> monarchs. And, and Ooh, I might monarchs. be one of them. Uh, and and so we get a lot of you know questions about that. But so certainly that orange and black, you know, striking marking is just makes them beautiful in nature, um, first and foremost, but their, their migration, I think it's really that draw that people are, are learning about and, and can't even comprehend this amazing migration that mm. monarchs do from Canada to central Mexico or to the coast of California, you know, up to like 3000 miles, these butterflies are, are flying and they're the weight of a paperclip. Um, and so just the fact that this tiny insect can accomplish a feat like migration um, is really just amazing and and draws people in to learn about them and to understand kind of that cool, that amazing, that inspiring phenomenon that is monarch migration. Mm. Yeah. That, so tell us a little bit about their migration. So you said they go from Canada down to central Mexico or to California. What's the difference in those two migrations? Yeah. So we, we kind of think of the populations in the, in North America, west of the Rocky mountains and east of the Rocky mountains. Um, so the population, the Eastern population east of the Rocky mountains is the, the much larger population. Um, and that's kind of covering a pretty pretty broad geographic range 
everywhere east of the Rocky Mountains, essentially extending into into Canada. And they migrate to central Mexico. And then the butterflies west of the Rocky Mountains primarily go to the coast of California. Um, but some of them do actually end up in Mexico as well. So there's 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 definitely some interchange between the two populations, the extent to which we don't know a lot about. Um, but those Western butterflies, yep, migrate to California, the coast of California for the winter, whereas the the eastern population goes a, a much farther distance to mountains of central Mexico. Yeah. And how long does it take them to do that longer uh, distance, that 3,000 miles? Yeah, so we see um, monarchs start to move south. Um, that, that migration starts right around the the in the northern part of the range right around the middle of August um, and then they arrive in Mexico around the first of November and so you know they fly 25 or 30 miles a day sometimes if conditions are right if it's the winds carrying them they can they can move quite a bit farther than that um, but it takes a few months for them to to get from the northernmost reaches to to their destination yeah. in Mexico Ken? How long you think it'd take you to get there? Oh, what, well, what do I get to? If I had to fly, you know, I'd never get there. You get a walk. Get a walk. <laughs> oh man, that's some. There's some rough country in between there. You know, some pretty significant topographical barriers. So, I mean, if you put all that in, I bet it. I bet it take me. You know, month and a half, two months, something like that. Month and a half. Brother, I feel like that is too fast. That's well, forty-five think, days. Well, think about like you know the Appalachian Trail. You know that basically goes from where where does that start? Georgia, I think it starts at Georgia, and it goes all the way up to uh, Maine. I think you know Canada. So it's it's probably you know there's a little bit more distance in between Canada and Mexico, but you know brother i've i've seen you out in the hot sun and you are a tough man but you are claiming to go 67 miles a day and i'm calling crap there's no i said i said i said i said a a month and a half or two months what what about two months how does that that is not much better brother (laughs) that is 50 miles a day i give you i give you all right miles a day Maybe if we gave him a bike, he could make it on a bike. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Thank you, Wendy. That's what I was thinking of the whole time. I actually just brought you on here, Wendy, so we could roast Ken for an hour. <laughs> Sorry, man. I'm in. Oh, I'm man. in. Well, done by a human, that is impressive. But we can fight for ourselves a little more. Monarchs are, as you said, the weight of a paperclip what kind of predators besides uh human agriculture do uh monarchs have yeah they have a lot of natural enemies um so really you know we we there's there's some research that talks about monarch survival just from a natural enemies perspective and you know it's less than 10 percent, probably even less than five more like two percent of the eggs that are laid actually reach adulthood for wow. monarchs um so so survival is not high but their their evolution is to produce a lot of offspring and spread them across the landscape our strategists know. right old r and k <laughs> strategists uh, survival yeah. curves yeah high high reproductive potential if conditions are good and so um 
Yeah, so so there's a lot of natural enemies, mostly insects that are eating them as eggs and as caterpillars, um, as butterflies. Certainly there are, are some natural enemies, but, you know, the thing we know about monarchs is they acquire these toxins from the milkweeds that they eat. So for mm. the most part, if vertebrate predators try to eat a monarch, whether it's a butterfly, adult butterfly, or a caterpillar, generally aren't going to want to try them again because they don't taste very good. Um, mm. And so, so it's mostly invertebrate predators from a natural enemy perspective. Although there are some really cool um, bird predators in Mexico that have adapted the ways that they eat monarchs. So they, they know where the toxins are and they can either tolerate them or avoid them. So, oh, wow. so That's interesting. natural enemy. There. That's that's something you don't think about. It's like to us, all insects are small, but to some insects, other insects are like the size of a house. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're, yeah. Compared to each other, they're just monstrous. So, so they're 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 flying back and forth from Mexico to Canada, or sometimes from the uh, coastal California to Canada. Um, when are they laying the eggs? At what point in these journeys are they are they reproducing? Good distinction. Yeah, it takes several generations so when they're when they're moving south um or to the coast that's typically one generation and that generation that leaves the northern part of the range in mid to late august um, or later they can live up to nine months and so they actually we call it reproductive diapause so those butterflies don't don't lay eggs right away they de delay that that reproduction so that they can migrate, invest more energy in um, drinking nectar from wildflowers and building up their fat reserves so that they can survive the winter in Mexico. So that southbound migration happens in one generation. They spend the winter there and they spend the winter in Mexico. We'll just use the eastern population as an example. And then they also start to breed then in Mexico and start moving north and reach as far as about Texas, the southern states, along the way which they're laying eggs, and then they they die um, having produced that next generation of offspring when they reach Texas. And so those offspring then will continue the journey north from eggs that are laid in Texas moving north. So it takes a few generations to move north, and it takes one to move south. Hmm. That's interesting, wow. really and interesting. That's crazy. That's like, like, uh, Kent's oldest is his, is his son is five or yeah, five, six, yep. five. So that's like him being born with no parents and just deciding to know where Maine is and walk there. That's so crazy. I've never been there. No one telling him where to go. Maybe he's following the orange. I don't know. There's a couple <laughs> like old, old butterflies that have been around maybe twice. And they're like, oh, follow us, young bucks. You know, we've been around. And those two butterflies lead all other uh, millions. Like, or that. So I know there used to be millions. Do you guys have any numbers you're guessing on how many are traveling? Um, millions for sure. Yeah. So when we measure monarch population size, when they're all congregated in Mexico, that's the or, or in California, that's purely the easiest place to measure the relative size of the population and so it's actually measured in area of 
so the butterflies are all clustered in trees. And so then they measure the area of the trees that the butterflies are occupying mm. Um, mm. because it's really hard to count yeah. millions of butterflies high up in the mountains. And so um, this is where the estimate gets a little bit challenging that you, you can't necessarily, because you can't count them super accurately, we have to estimate how many butterflies are in each branch or tree or, or hectare. Um, and so I, the, the number is a pretty wide range. They estimate, you know, kind of somewhere between 10 and 50 million butterflies per hectare. So, okay. So can you kind of explain the process for how they, they take those samples to, to get their estimates? Do you, do you know how they like, um, how they get their count for their little sample sizes? To get that. 10 to 50 million estimates. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't fully know the details of it, and it's 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 an it's an estimate at best, um, but I think they can they can extrapolate. So you know, counting a much smaller area, just a, a single branch on a tree, and then count the number of branches or the area of that sure. branch is a lot of the way it happens in the in the in, on the west coast, um, but also you know. Oftentimes, these forests are have a blanket of dead butterflies on the ground, and so sometimes uh, they're also measuring based on mortality and the butterflies that that don't make it. Um, so it's and then different temperatures. You know, each season is a little bit different, so the conditions might make the butterflies cluster more densely, closer together, or you know, if it's warmer maybe they're coming off of the trees. And so conditions might make those density estimates different. Yeah. It's definitely worth, worth explaining that. And you did a great job with that. I, I'd never heard, but I know that, you know, with each species and this is where the public can, you know, scrutinize me like, "Ah, how do you know it's an accurate count? We just uh, talked with Todd Bogenschutz, our uh, friend who's the state upland biologist here in Iowa. And uh, he talks about the roadside surveys they do every August for pheasant numbers, for quail numbers, for cottontail numbers, Hungarian partridges or partridge. And I think uh, jackrabbits are also a part of that as well. And, uh, he the idea is yeah we know we're not counting every single you know individual organism that is around however after enough years of having these parameters applied to our study our population study we can see very clear trends and so uh that's it's great to hear the framework for how that population study's done for the monarchs and and you know it kind of goes back to what nick Nick's question was there with like these, these later generation caterpillars, (laughs) you know, somehow being passed on the, the ability to either read signals in there among the other individuals, or maybe almost have some kind of genetic memory imprint or something that causes them to follow some kind of, some kind of stimulus to go where they're supposed to go. You know, insects, it's just like, one of those things that we're all interested in, but 
they're just so hard to figure out because they're so, I mean, they're, they're like an alien compared to us, you know, they're just like a totally different thing. Whereas we can relate on some level to pretty much all other mammals and even, even in some case reptiles and birds. But when you get down to an invertebrate, uh, organism, it's just life is so different for them. And so those population studies, I mean, just trying to, trying to wrap your head around how many of those organisms there are that exist and then how you would count them. I think it's really interesting to, to hear those details. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for kind of spelling that out. That's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. And when, when you think about, you know, kind of counting tens of millions of butterflies high up in the mountains and the trees, um, that's the easy way to measure them. You know, we also have to try to try to understand how monarchs are doing in other generations across their breeding range and that's counting billions of stems of milkweed and trying to find eggs and caterpillars there um and so so we do a lot of that with volunteers with professional field crews but also are you know diving into this innovative technology where can we fly drones over a grassland over a field and and use machine learning and computers to help us count more efficiently stems of milkweed and quantify this habitat that they they have available yeah so i i used uh machine learning the other day to show me how to cook uh so i'm and and if i can learn to cook i'm fairly confident that these drones can learn to count butterflies but that is very interesting what in the world is going on with drones and butterflies and and how do those two things go together yeah, I mean, in, in conservation, we're just we're just behind the eight ball a little bit where, you know, this technology is being used in so many aspects of our lives. Um, we found a technology partner that that said, hey, I think we could I think we could I think we could detect milkweed with the camera on a drone and teach a machine how to how to do that for us. Um, so we've mm-hmm. I've been working with this technology partner Modern Joint Venture has for a handful of years now where yeah, we go and we fly and take images and we called annotation. So we taught the machine, drew little boxes around milkweed plants, taught it what it was looking for. Um, and now we have this really cool and innovative tool that our partners across the country can use to, you know, if you have a drone, they can program a flight over their habitat, over a vast number of acres, and in real time get a report back of, how many milkweeds are on that hmm. on that site? Um, and it's just this simple, so to speak, process that hmm. of teaching the technology what it's looking for. So yeah, uh, that's really fascinating. Cool. What when I was a kid, we used to hoe out milkweed because milkweed was a weed. And uh, when all of a sudden, I got back from college, and Dad's like, "No, that stuff's real valuable. We don't hold that out anymore." And I was like, "Oh, okay." How? And there was a big push. What was that? Like twenty fifteen or sixteen? All of a sudden, milkweed was like the thing. And yeah. what happened there? What changed? What changed everyone's mind? And and how are we doing with getting more milkweed on the ground? Um, well, I don't think everybody's mind is is quite changed, but we're making good progress in that direction. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I think a lot of you know, perhaps a testament to the work that, that my organization's been doing for the last few decades, um, but, but really, you know, helping people 
understand that connection between monarchs and milkweeds and and that without milkweed we won't have monarch butterflies um and so it's i think just general awareness raising and and people coming in line with a, a stronger conservation ethic and how can we you know have productive lands for agricultural purposes but also find opportunities to to reincorporate conservation lands high quality acres for wildlife not just for monarchs but for other pollinators and so i think that there's just a, a culture shift in that way based on understanding and and the fact that we have a lot of work to do to to save the biodiversity of our of our planet mm. that is that kind of brings us to the next thing i saw on your website and, and by the way people if you want to learn more you can go to i be, believe it's monarchjointventure.org is that monarchjointventure.org they've got tons of information on monarchs on their migration on the organization that they have and how you can volunteer or donate or what they've been up to um but on there i came across monarch conservation implementation plan what is that <laughs> every every effort needs a plan right um, yeah so we were formed on a a plan called the North American Monarch Conservation Plan. So this is actually, you know, pulling researchers together and conservation stakeholders to devise a plan, not just for the U.S., but for North America. And that plan was the the reason that Monarch Joint Venture started. So the stakeholders that pulled together this plan um, said, now we need this entity to help carry it forward. And so when Monarch Joint Venture formed, North America is a pretty broad landscape and conservation needs and, and differences in, in approaches across, across countries was a huge challenge. So we opted to kind of focus on conservation efforts across the U.S. while still collaborating with Canada and Mexico, sharing information um, and, and building partnerships and, and building collaboration there. And so... This plan, the Monarch Conservation Implementation Plan, is what we use with our stakeholders <coughs> to help guide their conservation actions. Um, what's going to do? What's going to do best for monarchs in terms of educational goals or habitat goals or science needs? You know, where where can people plug in to this movement and really help continue to grow the effort? Um, and so so it's really a, a framework and a guide for people to plug in and hit the ground running versus versus kind of trying to recreate the wheel or really have to do a lot of research to understand and vet mm. this vast amount of information that's out there. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, it's pretty in-depth. It's it's like 20 to 30 pages long. You guys do, do a really good job. Um, if... Well, let's let's start with this. What what does conservation as a whole have to do with monarchs and and why? Right? Why why do we need conservation in order to save a species? Because the lack of conservation has helped raccoons and and white-tailed deer quite a bit. <laughs> Coyotes. Coyotes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I often joke about monarchs can use a milkweed that grows in a crack in the sidewalk. So in that sense, you know, monarchs are pretty resilient when it comes to wildlife. Um, they need habitat. 
but they can really use a lot of different kinds and qualities of habitat so long as it contains milkweed and and nectar resources um and so in that sense we have an opportunity to kind of engage in a lot of different ways in how lands are managed and how lands are available to pollinators a lot of species have much stricter requirements for their habitats monarchs they need milkweed and they need nectar um, and they need some protection from human threats and um but you know i think because they need this habitat this native plant habitat we can that's shared by all these other critters um and so so what's good for birds and what's good for other insects is also good for monarchs. And so it just gives us an opportunity to help help these other environmental yeah. challenges move forward more efficiently because we don't have huge acreages where we can restore habitats back to back to the historically native landscape at the scale that we want to. So we have to maximize our benefits on every acre that we're impacting hmm. yeah that's really good so the interesting thing it that you guys have going on that i really like is your focus is monarchs but you're very forward thinking you understand that conservation as a whole people need to learn about it and for them to learn about it they need a place to start and that's where you get this gateway bug uh the old uh monarch butterfly where people are like oh i want to save monarchs so what is that i mean i need milkweed and i need native plants i need nectar i need these things um, oh, in order to have those things, like, oh, bees are starting to come. Oh, um, the goldfinch is hanging out on my uh, on my cone flowers. They love hanging out on cone flowers. You know, oh, I actually care about this conservation thing. Oh, in order to get nectar for these these monarchs, I need I need these wildflowers, but I can't have a monolithic field. It doesn't do as well as a uh, um, as a field with lots of diversity, or it only produces flowers during this time of the year and all of a sudden they're thinking and they're engaging and and that i really like and and the monarch conservation implementation plan takes uh, not that we want to take out thinking but it takes a lot of the you don't have to invent the wheel over and over again you know with uh with helping these things now you personally with all of your education and everything that you've learned so far if you could snap your finger and change one thing about our ecological landscape, what would it be? Monarch related or not? Mm. I like this question. Um, <laughs> I would... Wendy's like, can I snap both of my fingers? <laughs> <laughs> can I, snap I wish for another wish. Can I have a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean, I think a lot about the agricultural landscape and the need to bring conservation back into this matrix of, of production production land. Um, and, and so oftentimes that pulls us to the margins. So if I could change our ecological landscape in the snap of a finger, I think I would put milkweed in all of the margins, all of the marginal habitat. How mm. can we maximize habitat in the margins um, where we know we can continue to support wildlife. Hmm. One of the bummers about milkweed is that it is expensive to grow. 
uh, and which means it's expensive to get back into the ground. Um, but we try to have at least a little bit of milkweed in almost every single mix that we send out because we know how, how vital it is uh, for butterflies. And when, when you drive up I-35 between Des Moines up to uh, you guys' uh, home in St. Paul, uh, you see signs for the Monarch Butterfly Highway. What, what is going on there? Monarch Highway is a, um, it's kind of a fun campaign. So it's bringing, we know that to accomplish our goals, we need all hands on deck. Um, meaning all of these different sectors that influence our landscape have to think about conservation in some way and, and do something about it. So that's energy and transportation lands, it's agricultural lands, it's public lands and backyard gardens. It's all these spaces that we have to influence. Um, and then Monarch Highway in particular, this central I-35 corridor is pretty pretty critical when it comes to monarch population success. So a lot of the monarchs that reach Mexico originate, you know, are, are born in the Midwest Corn Belt region. So where, where it's easy to grow corn, it's also easy to grow monarchs. And so um, that Midwest Corn Belt region is, is really important. And then all the way through central, you know, through the central flyway, Texas into northern Mexico, that's where monarchs are, all of these monarchs are funneling during their migration. And so that I-35 corridor becomes a pretty important region for conservation of monarchs in particular, and gives us a really tangible um, campaign to kind of focus focus conservation efforts, not just on roadside habitat or agricultural lands, but that entire, anything that falls in that corridor we want we want monarch habitat back out there. Mm. Mm. What so is is mo, are most of the butterflies fl- flying next to the highway in order to um, have those roadside pollinators that the DOT and, and other and you and I and Tallgrass Prairie Center are putting in? Um, they're they're not. I mean, certainly roadside habitat is is something that they're using if it's providing nectar resources, if it's providing milkweed. Um, the the monarch highway concept is just a, a generalization, uh, a tool to envision this corridor. Um, but you know that said, there are some really incredible efforts happening on on from from departments of transportation and other road authorities to to use that habitat. These roadside habitats really are corridors connecting a lot of the. Mm-hmm the natural habitats across the landscape and and can be used, can be used by monarchs, by pollinators. Um, Mm. There are some risks, you know, in certain areas, vehicle collisions and, you know, threats from the the input on our road, you know, like there's, there, there inevitably are always going to be risks with, with habitat. But in general, we, we, we know that, in most cases, the the benefits outweigh the risks for producing and supporting pollinators. Yeah, that's a question that I've often had. You know, when you especially, and maybe not so much the roadside because, you know, that creates this this boundary for not really needing. You know, if, if theoretically you have a ton of pollinator habitat on both sides of the road, I'm sure there'll be some 
you know, butterflies and bees, even birds flying back and forth that get hit by a, you know, a 75 mile an hour vehicle or something. But uh, especially the pollinator that goes in the medians, that's the one I wonder about a lot. Is that, has there been any research there to be like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's a great thought to utilize that ground for, for, uh, you know, putting in some more pollinator acres. But what we're doing here is we're luring these pollinators into an almost certain death where they got to fly across, you know, sometimes four, six, eight lanes of, of 75 mile an hour traffic semis that are, you know, 15 plus feet tall, you know, is, is there any research there to say that, you know, that's not the best application that you know of? There is. Yeah. I don't know it well, but, but I think you're right on that. Those median, those, those acres in the middle um, aren't always the best for wildlife purposes, including for monarchs, just because a lot of it depends on speed of the traffic. And there's, there's, there's definitely, there are definitely places where we could put our habitat efforts. We could spend that effort in, in better places. For mm. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious, Kent, uh, for you, while we've got this, if you could snap your finger, what would you change? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I like that too. The, the, uh, you know, habitat is just the foundation for all wildlife species vertebrate or invertebrate if you have a suitable habitat you have those species but the thing that i think of the most and wendy's talked about this a little bit i believe is um, when you have a migrating species having that uniform habitat that makes it so that you're not island hopping so to speak to get to where you are you have a you have a steady reliable resource to get you from point a to point b and uh, a good example of this outside of uh, the butterfly world would be uh with mule deer and i believe kind of the same thing has been going on with pronghorn out west um uh pronghorn or uh, mule deer especially are uh they are a migrating species but ever since the interstate and highway systems have been you know spread all over our country that has chopped up the habitat for you know these large animals as well you know these these large species and it's greatly impacted the genetic diversity for uh that wildlife and uh so what they've done is they've created these animal overpasses where they make it look like a natural setting. It's like a bridge that goes over the interstate so animals can have safe passage, or they do underpasses, like tunnels, that uh, they can walk through and get to the other side. And it allows them to have that uninterrupted, you know, don't have to do this mad dash to get across four lanes of, and out there, you know, it's literally speed limit's like 85 miles an hour. Uh, You know, they don't have to try and play frogger to get, to where they want to go in the winter and they can complete their natural migration and you know during the breeding season interact with animals that are from totally different states you know what i mean and think of how good that is for the gene pool well that same principle uh, applies to uh, 
butterflies. I got to think, you know, with, with, with prairie habitat being so fragmented, you know, you got to think that that, that those, all those extra hurdles in that migration process has probably been one of the biggest effects on the population. I would, I would have to think is, is, uh, as that gets more and more sparse, you know, Nick just did a great, um, reflection on the bell bowl, uh, prairie situation, uh, that just took place a week and a half or so ago, two weeks ago, something like that. And, uh, uh, like that serves as an example, you know, it's only 15 acres, but if that 15 acres is the best spot those butterflies had in that little corridor there, well, now that's gone. And now they have to go a bigger gap in their migration to have a, have, you know, a safe feeding area along their route. And, uh, and even, you know, then of course a place to lay eggs and, and, uh, for caterpillars to be healthy and have plenty of habitat. So they're not easy pickings. And so I think if I could snap my fingers, it'd be that we could have all of these well-established, not just fragments, like, you know, one person on this, you know, per square mile is on board with monarchs and none of their neighbors are, and they're the only farm that has, you know, good habitat, you know, if you could string together these long networks of people who landowners and public land in between that could fill in those gaps and make those migration routes as uniform as possible. I think, I think you would see tremendous uh, gains in, uh, in the health, the population health for all pollinators for that matter. Not just, not just monarchs. Mm. That's good. I think, um, yeah, habitat and conservation are uh, two um, unseparable twines. You know, that mm-hmm. you can't separate them. So, gotta so, have, gotta have a place to live. Gotta have a place to sleep. Gotta have a place to eat. And prairies, prairies fill that need. Yeah, yeah. So we don't we don't have too much longer, but. Um, something I want to get at is I want to get your take on um, agriculture and and how it affects uh, monarch butterflies. We had um, Phil Ebert, who's a legend in the honey realm. Uh, he came on and, and was talking about how it affected bees. But I'm curious if you guys see similar effects uh, with monarch butterflies as the bees do from, you know, just large scale uh, agriculture. No doubt, yeah, yeah. Agriculture has has a pretty big impact on the conservation landscape in general, um, taking away a lot of the habitat, high quality habitat that was historically available. Um, and so, in some sense, there's there there perhaps from a monarch perspective, when tillage used to be the the kind of primary method of weed control, farming was perhaps inadvertently increasing the number of milkweeds on the landscape because milkweed thrives in that disturbed environment. And Mm. so tilling to try to get rid of weeds actually probably caused a lot of milkweeds to, to reemerge, not just in one step, but actually multiply. Um, And so then with the onset of herbicide tolerant crops, you know, that wiped out milkweeds from these agricultural fields. And and that happened over the course of, of time, um, but you know we, we're we're not seeing that conversion of 
these Roundup Ready acres have, have already been converted. We've already lost the habitat from those landscapes. And so has the population declined, you know, throughout that? Yes, but also the threat of, of losing habitat within agricultural fields isn't as much the case today as it was, you know, a decade or more ago. And, and so we have to look at kind of how, how this habitat in the margins and the available lands can be providing habitat for monarchs and other pollinators and other wildlife um, at the same time that the, the, the crop landscape is typically not providing habitat. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's a good point. That's really interesting too, about the, uh, the boom that happened during the time of, of, uh, you know, using cultivators instead of sprayers. That's, that's really interesting. I'd never heard that before. That's fascinating. Yeah. The, um, yeah, because we we know that uh, large scale agriculture is not is not like a horrible thing. It just has had side effects that now we're needing to deal with, and we need to figure out. Okay, maybe there is a better way, or maybe we can just adjust our course a little bit. And I was curious how that affected the monarchs, but it's good to know. I I I do where I really want us to land today is is our um listeners range from farmers who own thousands of acres to uh people in uh concrete buildings that don't have don't even have a lawn <laughs> um but what uh what can we do people who like they're they're listening to you talk they're hearing um they're hearing this mission statement that you guys have this vision for a future um safe uh traveling and uh, breeding for the monarchs and they they decide i want to do something what do i do what, what would you say to them um well all hands on deck that's that's our that's our goal that's our motto um and so everything that we do we hope in some way shape or form can help influence people inspire people to find the the places the land in their lives that they can add pollinator habitat, add milkweeds back to the landscape. Our goal is to add 1.8 billion stems of milkweed across the Eastern Monarch range. Uh, and that's a lot of milkweed. And we need a lot of people to help with that, whether it's in your backyard, whether it's on your, on your farm, on your ranch, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for us to put this habitat back out there. And, and so we need to find all of those opportunities to do that. So we have, Staff, you know, we have a pollinator habitat help desk that helps farmers connect with local programs that that can walk them through how to do this, what programs are available to me, what what financial resources are available to me. We have staff that can really help navigate all of those opportunities. Um, backyard gardeners engaging at the at the municipal level within your within your community within your city. There are programs that we partner with like the National Wildlife Federation's Mayor's Monarch Pledge. So get your city officials to, to sign on and help raise awareness and education for the cause um, because that will in turn help people in their backyards create this matrix of, of habitat um, for monarchs, for other pollinators. We get people out 
studying monarchs, we much, much of what we know about monarchs, we learn from community science volunteers. Hmm. There are really cool programs out there to tag butterflies, to monitor the milkweed patch in your backyard. We run a program called the Monarch Larva Monitoring Project. So essentially, you adopt a patch of milkweed and go out and look for eggs and caterpillars and report back to us what you're finding. And that helps us understand survival, available habitat, um, and it inspires people to be part of science, be a part of conservation, and you know help help in so many ways that inspire them to continue to do more. Yeah, yeah. that is well said. Good. Well said. Yeah. Well, I want to bring this back uh, for listeners. Monarchs are beautiful, wonderful creatures. And uh, not only are, you know, are they pollinating and uh, just, I mean, it would be a shame to lose something that migrates over four generations. But um, they are, for lack of a better term, they're a gateway. So if, if you know people that love monarch butterflies if if you see people and they're interested in that or if you love them and you are and other people are starting to catch your fire um we want to keep in mind the conservation and, and how it is needed for for the monarchs and their survival and our other pollinators and the creatures that that live there and our water and our soil and our air quality and all these things they're all connected and um in, in every great organization uh, there are several spokesmen that they are chosen because they are great at speaking or they're charismatic. And of the Midwestern North American landscape, their uh, habitat and creation has kind of chosen the monarch butterfly to speak to the humans to say, hey, we need help. Um, and that is something that Wendy and their team are doing a really good job in every organization. You said there was about 120 organizations that you're working with on the Monarch joint venture. If you have no idea what we're talking about, or even if you do and you want to learn more, please check out their website, monarchjointventure.org. It is a really cool time. Uh, before we took off, was there anything either of you guys wanted to add? Well, I, I mean, I think you, you guys both said it very well there just for how people can get involved and, and uh you know it it is so critically important that we we see these things and you know we can get so wrapped up in the you know habitat world with what people interact with on a personal level most frequently you know so uh people who are hikers they're bird watchers they're concerned about you know seeing uh uh, mammals and birds, people that are hunters, they want to see pheasants and deer and rabbits and things like that. And people who, uh, you know, uh, maybe just enjoy the flower side of it, but we can't forget about all these other species that maybe, um, don't, don't, uh, carry so much weight around in, in the view of others. And I'd say monarchs probably do a pretty good job being charismatic, but, but um, there's a lot of other pollinating species that that maybe aren't quite so obvious and quite so well known. And and uh, when you help 
the monarchs, you help those too. And I think that, you know, Nick, you said it, you said it well, you know, you kind of, it sounded almost like a little bit of a Disney movie there, Nick, but, uh, you said that, uh, it's the monarch's job to talk to the people and alert them to the problem. Hey, but, uh, <laughs> I'm, here for. I'm trying to go back to those original 2d drawing. <laughs> Come on, bring them back. But, but it's a good point. It really is. They're, they're there to draw our attention and uh, you know if we can help out the monarchs so much good can be done for so many other uh, invertebrates and so many other plant species and even all the way down to the microbe uh, aspect of these prairie ecosystems benefit from these these good uh, practices thank you like wendy very much for for sharing all the info with us thanks so much for hanging out with us the only thing awesome. I have to add is like we just have to keep thinking outside the box, thinking of mm, all of these. Yep. You know, we have we've created an imperfect landscape for wildlife and for conservation, so we have to keep finding new, innovative, and maybe yes. non-traditional partnerships that that can help us accomplish this goal. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Very well and, said. And uh, this goal, this goal of of monarchs and and conservation. As we all know, it happens one mind at a time. 